Hey guys, and thanks for joining us for this first podcast version of Open Mic. We got a bunch of things to talk about here today. Wide Art versus Tombstone. Which one do I prefer and why? We're going to be talking about the future of big blockbuster movies versus small, mid to low budget films. Also, how do we feel about the Kevin Smith horror offerings like Red State and Tusk? Also, are those people who are calling for a Snyder Cut going to say that they love the HBO miniseries no matter how good or bad it is? We're going to talk a little bit about that too, so sit back, relax, and let's get into open mic. All right, guys, let's get started. Now, before we get into the first question, just want to give a special thank you to all of our Patreon supporters who are the ones who submitted all these topics and questions for us to address today here on open mic. So a special thank you to all you guys. All right. Let's not waste any more time and let's get right into it here. Dakian Pradian Halibrin writes, since the pandemic has affected the movie industry this hard, do you believe small or mid-budgeted movies will be a focus for the studios going forward? I hope so, because I pray for a The Nice Guys sequel. Thank you and have an excellent day. All right. Thanks a lot for sending that in. First of all, Nice Guys. Nice Guys is like the poster child movie for people complain that Hollywood doesn't do original movies and then they go ahead and put out an amazing, completely original movie like The Nice Guys, and nobody went to go see it. I think the movie made like $62 million worldwide. It lost the studio a lot of money. And unfortunately, even though I love it, and almost everybody who's seen the movie loves it, I don't think we're ever going to get a sequel to that. It just didn't do well financially because people didn't support it, unfortunately. Anyway, it's an interesting question because I actually think it's going to be the opposite of what you're saying. Cause you know, you're asking, are they going to focus more on mid to low budget movies instead of blockbusters? I actually think it's going to be a little bit of the opposite. I think what we're going to see over the coming years, I mean, this is if movie theaters survive and all that kind of stuff. Now I I've said for a while, I know we're touching on a bunch of things here, but if the movie theaters can stay alive until movies start coming back, movie theaters will be fine. They will, they will be totally fine. The question becomes, can they stay alive until the movie, until the movies come back? That's the big question. But let's assume for a minute that when the movies start coming back out again, the movie theaters are still there. The movie theaters have survived. Okay. So let's assume that for a minute. If that's being the case, I actually think you're going to see a growing trend towards more and more of the movies that hit theaters are going to be larger budget films. These are going to be films that studios and producers and investors believe can make $500 million at the box office, can make $700 million at the box office or more. Basically, they're going to be higher budget films that they can get, they believe they can get big returns on their investment. Now, that doesn't mean I don't think we're going to get any mid-budget to low-budget films in theaters. Obviously, we are. I just think you're going to start to see a little bit of a shift like a little bit of balance shift. Whereas I think smaller to mid-budget films, I think you're going to see more of those, but I think those are going to more shift towards streaming. Because as we get further and further into the streaming wars and everything, you're going to see the streaming platforms get cheaper and cheaper. You're going to see, and I don't mean cheaper as in less expensive for us to have them, but I mean how much money they actually put into movies. I think you're going to see the movies that are going to be original to streaming. You're going to see those are going to be cheaper and cheaper movies, not necessarily bad movies, but it less and less expensive. They're going to try to save money where they can. And that's why I think you're going to see a, a greater trend as we move forward over the next number of years towards that. So that's kind of where I think we're at right now. Excellent question. All right. Next one up comes to us from Ian who writes, hi, After watching Borat, and I love it, even the moon dance scene, I'll say no more, was wondering how do they keep it legal and do they need permission of people to use them in the film? As I noticed, some people's faces were blanked out. Thanks for all you do and really looking forward to the documentary. Thank you so much, Ian. And yeah, I've got my own documentary coming out here in the next couple of months, so I'm really excited about that. Um, You know what? That's a great question. Now, look, you can film if you have a shooting permit. You can film out in public spaces. And if you are out and about in a public place, then you do not have, if I remember correctly, a reasonable assumption of privacy. Like if you're out on the city streets and walking up and down the sidewalk, you do not have a reasonable assumption of privacy. 
If somebody else is outside shooting in a public place and they're shooting public spaces and you happen to be there, I think for the most part, if I'm not mistaken, that's fine. I I don't think there's anything a filmmaker has to worry about that unless you become featured or anything like that. And then you have to sign waivers uh, to be a part of it. How exactly, though, a movie like Borat pulls off what they pull off? That's a little unclear to me. I mean, I am by profession, not a filmmaker. I've made a couple of projects, but I'm really not a filmmaker. And I've certainly, even in the little projects that I've done, I've never done anything like Borat. So, I mean, that's a great question. Uh, I'd be very curious to know the answers to that myself. Like, where is the line drawn between somebody in the background in the park and you don't need to get a release from them, but somebody who is closer to the camera walks by and they blur out their faces? Because I noticed that in Borat as well. Somebody who's closer to the camera and they blur out their faces and they need to blur them out. Well, why did they need to blur them out and not other people? That's a good question. It's a filmmaker question, though. And I have some answers to filmmaker questions, but I don't have that one. So if you find information about that, please do share it with the rest of us because I'd love to hear more. All right. Good question, man. And I'm sure you're not the only one that wonders that. All right. Madhu Vatan writes, what is your opinion on The Godfather Part 3? I personally think it gets too much hate, but it isn't as great as the first two. What do you think of it? And are you excited for the new version? Of course, we've talked on the John Campus show recently about the fact that there, there's a new Godfather uh, film coming. Uh, you know How that's going to work out, I don't know, but I am excited to see that as well. But let's talk about The Godfather Part 3. I've actually said on my show a number of times I completely believe The Godfather Part 3 gets way more flack than it deserves. And, and it feels like to me that the further and further away we get from God, from when Godfather 3 came out, the more and more there's this accepted um, train of thought out there that The Godfather Part 3 sucked. You know, Godfather Part 1 and 2 are two, are two of the greatest movies of all time. But there becomes... As more and more time passes, even though I don't think people are going back and watching it more, there's this accepted assumption out there that The Godfather Part 3 sucked. I contend The Godfather Part 3 is a great movie. Anywhere near as good as Godfather 1 and 2? No, I'm not saying that. But I really do believe Godfather 3 is not just a good, but a great film. It's a great movie with a couple of major weaknesses. Now, a lot of people forget that all three Godfather films were nominated for Best Picture at the Academy Awards. All three of them. That includes the third one. And I thought it was a terrific conclusion to the Godfather trilogy. And, you know, Rob and I have talked about it on my show, and Rob agrees with me. Godfather 3 is a really good film. But the one big flaw, the one big weakness to the film that everybody will point to and I agree with was the decision by Francis Ford Coppola to put in his own daughter, Sofia Coppola, into that big major role in the film, where I believe it's Andy Garcia that she she has the romantic relationship with and has that storyline. And if I'm not mistaken, and I could be, I think that was supposed to be Renona Ryder. If if I'm not mistaken, I'm just thinking this off the top of my head, but I think that was supposed to be that role that Sofia Coppola played, I believe was originally supposed to go to Winona Ryder. And if I'm remembering right, and I could be wrong, like Winona Ryder had to back out or something. And instead of going through another casting search, Coppola just decided to put his own kid in it, who, listen, Sofia Coppola has turned into a hell of a director, an absolutely fantastic director in the business, but she's not much of an actress. And absolutely, I agree with the criticism that, you know, the scene she was in particular, they were never able to muster any chemistry uh, between her. And I, again, I believe it was Andy Garcia playing that role. They were never able to muster any real on-screen chemistry. She really flattened out the movie. I agree. But that is not the majority of the film. That's just not the majority of the film. That is a side story in the movie. And it's not so bad that it derails everything else. And I contend all the other stuff in Godfather Part 3 is actually really great. So I agree with the criticisms, but I don't agree with a lot of people's overall conclusion 
that because of that one weakness, the movie sucked. I, I disagree. I personally believe, look, all film is subjective, but I personally believe that while clearly the weakest of the Godfather films, that the Godfather part three isn't of itself a really, really good to great movie. So that's my thoughts on it. Thanks for writing that in, Matthew. Okay. Next up, we've got Christian Ruben, 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 let me see if I can get this right. Rubiano. Christian Rubiano writes, hey, John, longtime fan since the Man of Steel review. Thank you so much, Christian. It always amazes me how many people started watching during that one movie review that we did uh, years ago with the Man of Steel. Anyway, my question is about Zack Snyder's Justice League. Do you believe HBO Max will create a behind-the-scenes docu-series to complement the limited series, much like Disney did with The Mandalorian? If so, what would be included in such a series? Could it cover all aspects of the Snyder Cut drama or simply cover its on-screen creative decisions? I apologize for the loaded question, but I'm super excited for my first open mic question. Well, there you go. Thanks a lot for saying that in, Christian. Okay, so Mandalorian... Disney Plus made a really good decision by creating this kind of behind the scenes docu series on, you know, them making Mandalorian and what went into making Mandalorian. And for the it had a couple of really weak episodes, but for the most part it was pretty cool. Could we see HBO mimic that and do like its own kind of behind the scenes special of how this Justice League HBO version came to be. I think they very well could. And I think a lot of people would be very interested in watching that. However, I also completely believe it'll be scrubbed clean. And by that, I mean, it's going to be all PR. They are not, I, I, I wouldn't trust whatever docuseries they do there. And I don't care if it was Disney or Warner Brothers, whoever, whoever was handling this, I wouldn't trust them at all to actually tell us what really went down. There was a lot of damage done and there was a lot of hurt feelings and there was a lot of stuff behind the scenes. And I do not believe for a second that they'll go into the real story. I believe much like the Mandalorian a docu-series was pretty tame. I mean, it was really just all light fluff, some very interesting light fluff, and I enjoyed watching it, but it was very, very surface. It was very just, yeah, wasn't it great to work on a Star Wars show? Man, it sure was. Didn't you love working on a Star Wars show? I absolutely did enjoy working on a Star Wars show. Isn't Star Wars great? Yeah, Star Wars is great. I mean, most of that Mandalorian docuseries was mo- was 95% that. So, but I still enjoyed it. If they do a kind of docuseries for this HBO miniseries version of Justice League, I have no doubt it will be very similar to that. They won't get into the real behind the scenes drama. They won't get into the real uh, things that happen and all that kind of stuff. They won't show any of the real negative stuff. They will keep it 99% positive, much like the Mandalorian did uh, on over on Disney. They will keep it all PR fluff, all great stuff like that. And you know what? Just like the Mandalorian docuseries, I'm going to be interested in it. And I think a lot of people will be. So that's kind of my guess. So I think it's a good 50-50 chance that they do it. I don't see why they wouldn't. I mean, people would be interested in that. Even if you keep it just all fluff, people will still be interested, including me. So yeah, I, I kind of maybe 51%. I lean that they will do it. All right. Thanks for sending that uh, question, Christian. All right. Next up comes to us from Cal and Cal writes, cool idea, John, as always love the show. As always, my question is, do we ever expect a Netflix or Amazon to spend like 500 to $700 million on a movie like a James Bond in order to exclusively stream on their service. All right. Thanks for sending that in Cal. And of course the stuff behind Cal's question is earlier this week, there was a story that made the rounds that Netflix and Apple TV plus went to the bond franchise and MGM and tried to buy the movie no time to die to go on their streaming service. Now, undoubtedly the number they probably went to 
MGM with was probably in the neighborhood of 200 to 275 million, which would have made it probably the most expensive acquisition in streaming history. The problem is, of course, is that MGM's not dumb. And they went back to Apple Plus and Netflix and said, "Mm, okay, we'll hear you out. But just so you know, the conversation needs to start at 600 million, which is way beyond what an Apple TV Plus or a Netflix would be willing to put out because that just doesn't make business sense. It just becomes so expensive. It just doesn't make business sense for them. Can I ever see Netflix or Amazon spending that kind of money on a single project? No. No, I don't. Look, the streaming wars are going to lead off with some big money being spent, and we're seeing that happen already, to make the biggest splash, acquire the biggest properties, and all that kind of stuff. But make no mistake about it. The vast majority of the stuff that we see on Netflix is very low-budget stuff. The vast majority of stuff on, particularly the original stuff on Disney Plus, is very, very micro budget to low budget, like low to micro budget stuff. Yeah, they'll put out the Mandalorian, but for every one Mandalorian that they spend some money on, most of their program is like uber, uber, uber low budget stuff. They have to keep costs down. And I think you're going to see that trend continue over the next few years. You're going to see the streaming. I I personally believe. Now, I don't know this to be true. It's just what I believe is going to happen. What I believe you're going to see is as years progress, you're going to see the streaming services spending less and less on individual projects. They may spend more overall because they're going to try to produce more stuff. But as far as how much they spend for an individual title, an individual property, an individual project, especially like a one-shot movie instead of like a 12-episode series, I believe you're going to see it with some rare exceptions. I think you're going to see those numbers go lower and lower. So personally, I mean, anything can happen. Absolutely. And and we don't know, and I don't know, but my guess right now is we'll never see uh, a streaming service pay that kind of money for a one-shot project, like a movie like No Time to Die. So no, I don't, I don't personally think we're ever going to see that. But You never know. Let's see what happens. All right. Good question, Cal. Next one up comes to us from Kyle Garrett. And Kyle Garrett writes, hey, John, a question about documentaries. Ooh, okay. Some documentaries have an advocacy agenda, which is fine, but sometimes interviews are edited in a misleading way to conform uh, to the documentarian's point of view or a countervailing arguments are not given any screen time. I know there are hundreds of hours of footage that have that have to get edited down in a documentary, but this feels wrong to me. Do you think this practice is ethical? All right, thanks a lot for sending that in. That's it's a good question cuz look, every movie and this includes documentaries is told through the prism of the filmmaker. Narrative animated, live action, documentary. All movies are told through the prism of the filmmaker. In documentaries, that means a story is being told through the prism of the director of the documentary. And and so that will carry with it some degree of personal bias, no matter what. Like, no matter what. The challenge becomes, as a filmmaker, limiting that personal bias as much as possible. I made a documentary about, I'm, I don't know, I'm guessing now, maybe about 13 years ago, 13, 14 years ago. I made, it was my first ever project like this. And it was a little documentary called Prince of Peace, God of War. And it was a documentary that looked at the interesting situation, especially at the time of the Christian church, particularly in North America, where you have a segment of the Christian church that completely believes in nonviolence, that Christians don't kill people. Meanwhile, you had another segment of the Christian church that completely endorsed the idea of war and and, and completely endorsed the idea of Christians killing people. It is commonly known as the pacifist versus the quote-unquote just war theory uh, people within the Christian church. Now, I myself, making this movie, 
I came into the movie with a particular belief. And that belief was that if you look at what the Bible says, it's clear Christians should not kill people. That's just my own personal point of view. But I wanted to make damn sure that even though I, I wanted to make sure of two things. Number one, that I explicitly said in the documentary and made it clear that I was personally coming to it with that point of view. So that was important thing to me, number one. The second important thing to me was that I give equal time in the movie and talk to just as many professors, historians, experts who fell on the just war side of the argument. And I'll be honest with you, I I have been, I've received a lot of compliments from people on both sides of that debate that my documentary approach to that was very fair and balanced. I made it clear that I believe personally one thing, and I interviewed a lot of experts, professors, doctors, historians um, who also agreed with me, but I also interviewed and talked to doctors, professors, historians, just as many on the other side. And I've received a lot of compliments for that over the years. And that is really what I think a documentary, if it's approaching an adversarial topic, like for instance, there are some documentaries like my upcoming documentary on, uh, on movie trailers, movie trailers, a love story. There's no adversarial aspect to my documentary. It's really just looking at the history of movie trailers and the evolving relationship between movie trailers and film fans from their beginning in 1913 all the way up to today. There's not really a counterpoint of view. There's not an adversarial thing about that. In a lot of documentaries, they, there are. And and so in my first documentary, Principes God of War, was like that. So I do think it's important that they do that. I think if you're going to interview somebody, make you've got to edit the interview, yes, but make sure you are, make sure it is a priority for you that the intention of what your subject, what the person you're interviewing is saying comes across, right? Put up a counterpoint from another interview from somebody else if you want, but make sure you don't misrepresent what it is your subject is saying. So if I'm having an interview with somebody, let me go back to my Prince of Peace, God of War documentary. When I was interviewing a professor from this big seminary who was who believed in just war theory that Christians under the right circumstances can kill people. Uh, my interview with that person was an hour long, but I only had I could only put in like five or six minutes of that interview in. So I had to make sure when I edited it that that professor's message, what it was that professor was trying to say is properly represented in those five or six minutes that I put in there. And I believe it's important for uh, documentarians to do that or be very clear off the bat that this particular documentary is looking at this, this issue from only this point of view. And I believe those are valid as well. You can do a documentary that only looks at it at an issue from one point of view. Just be clear that that's what you're doing. Just be clear that you are looking at it from that point of view. And I've seen a lot of documentaries do that, and they're excellent. So, yeah, but the one thing, I'll be honest with you, Kyle, I haven't seen many documentaries that are meant to be adversarial and proposing that they're putting forth both sides of the argument, but they really muddied the waters on one. I've never really come across many that do that. I think it only happens very rarely, but uh, it is it is a problem and it shouldn't be done when they do it. So that's my take on that. Anyway, that's my thoughts. Thanks a lot for writing that in, Kyle. Okay, next up, we've got Josh who writes, hey, John, I watched Stephen Amell's most recent interview with Michael Rosenbaum, who played Lex Luthor on uh, Smallville um, from yesterday. He's got what's the name of his podcast? Michael Rosenbaum's got this really cool podcast. I think what like touching my body or I can't I can't remember what the name of Michael Rosenbaum's podcast is, but something like that. Anyway, uh, yesterday, Stephen admitted that when he went to Canada in the summer, when things got wild, he feared delays on his new wrestling show, Heels, called Greg Berlanti and said, I want to work. If you can't if you can't get actors up here due to the COVID traveling restrictions, could you find a way to bring Oliver back from the dead? To which Berlanti said, yeah, sure. Why not? Do you think we could see the return of Oliver Queen? All right. Thanks a lot for that. Actually, you know, you kind of left out the main most interesting thing that was in that interview. Uh, 
which Stephen Amell talking to Michael Rosenbaum mentioned that he himself actually contracted COVID-19. He actually caught the virus. And he was really worried that it was going to shut down the show, but they were able to shoot around him. He quarantined for two weeks and then was able to come back. So that was kind of the biggest thing. Um, Listen, I've always thought that we would see in one form or another and to some degree that we would see Oliver come back, but not permanently. Like, I don't believe we're going to see Oliver come back and we'll have, you know, the Green Arrow part two series. I don't think we're going to see Oliver come back and become a series regular on the flash. I've always thought though, that we'll see him pop up here and there. Like he'll make an appearance on flash or he'll make a quick appearance on Supergirl or something along those lines. I've always thought that was the case. I've never thought he'd come back in the regular uh, you know, sort of capacity. And this little interview doesn't change my mind at all. I still believe he'll, yeah, he'll pop up at some point, but not in any sort of a regular basis. That's my take on it anyway. And I, I love Stephen Amell as, uh, as era. I really do. All right. Derek Romich writes, Hey, John, how do you feel about the Dodgers and uh, Kershaw finally winning the World Series? Not a Dodgers fan myself, but love when a classic team wins the title, except for the Yankees. Anyway, I thought it was a great series and know you love sports and would just love your take. Thanks. All right. Thanks a lot for that, Derek. Now, I'm, listen, for those of you who have watched me or listened to me for any period of time, you know that I am not a baseball fan. I'll follow baseball a little bit, but. I'm not a big baseball fan. Uh, I am notorious for saying I don't even consider baseball a sport. I consider it a very good game, but I don't consider it a sport, much like I consider curling or golf or whatever games as opposed to sports. But whatever, I don't mean to get into that debate right now. But with any league, even ones I don't follow very, like I don't follow soccer, but when the World Cup is on, I watch it. I don't follow baseball, but when it's the World Series, I watch And I live in L.A. and my wife is a Dodgers fan. So, you know, I was there cheering for the Dodgers to watch it. I got to say the drama of this World Series as a non-baseball fan, it was great. It was great from wacky endings to all the different storylines that were in it to that final game. You know, right to the thing where like Tampa Bay's pitcher Snell, he was destroying the Dodgers. He was absolutely toying with them. And then in the, the dumbest decision I've ever seen in baseball, the manager pulls Snell five and a half innings into the game. He had struck out nine of the 18 batters he faced. He only gave up two hits over five plus innings. He was destroying them. And the Tampa Bay manager decided to pull him out of the game. And you could see all the L.A. Dodgers smile and start to celebrate that they were pulling this pitcher who had been destroying them out of the game. Dumbest thing I'd ever seen, but it was great. But also, look, it is awesome when you get to see legends like Clayton Kershaw, who is one of the greatest of all time, to get his ring. That's always great. I remember, you know, uh, the great there was a great defenseman, legendary defenseman in the NHL by the name of Ray Bork. He played most of his seasons, most of his career with the Boston Bruins, never won the cup. I believe it was the Colorado Avalanche that he went to, played on them in his final, I think it was in his final season or final one or two seasons, they won the Stanley Cup. And it was just awesome to see this legend finally get his ring. You know, I mean, that was just fantastic to see. Um, so yeah, I love seeing stuff like that. So it was really good to see. Thanks a lot for writing that in Derek. All right. Saberwolf writes, Hey John, I'm so hyped for Jared Leto coming back as the clown Prince of crime. Uh, I really enjoyed his take on Joker. His crew was so awesome and crazy. Panda man is my favorite. Can't wait to see what Jared's Joker has in store for us. Also still excited for Morbius. Okay. So what Saberwolf is clearly talking about here is the news that came out recently that Jared Leto is coming in. Remember, he didn't shoot anything. He was not originally going to be in Justice League in Zack Snyder's cut of Justice League. He never shot anything, but they've decided to put him in. And Jared Leto is coming back as Joker. I am one of the few people who really like this news because I'm one of the few people who actually like Jared Leto's Joker. I know a lot of people don't. I thought it was a great 
new take on Joker. You know, whenever we talk about Joker, I always say, look, if you're going to do Joker, you've got to do him in such a way that he is still clearly Joker, but yet he is clearly unique and distinct from any of the other guys who have already played him, right? Just like Heath's Joker was very different from Jack's Joker. And Jack's Joker was very different from Cesar Romero's Joker. And Joaquin Phoenix's Joker was very different from Heath's Joker. And all that kind of stuff. And, pardon me, and when you look at Jared Leto's Joker, I believe it carried that on. They had to find a completely different way to do a totally new Joker while at the same time maintaining that essence of the Joker. And I thought they did it great with Jared Leto. I mean, did I like it as much as Heath's Joker? No. Did I like his Joker as much as Joaquin Phoenix's Joker? No. Did I like his Joker as much as Jack's Joker? No. But I still thought it was really good. And so I was really happy that he's coming back. But listen, even though you and I are happy about this, Saber, let's not get ahead of ourselves. The Joker in this Justice League is going to be an afterthought. He's only going to be in, a, in it briefly, right? So I'm not going to get too terribly excited. I don't think he's got a lot in store for us, but you know what? I'm okay with that. I'm just happy. I'm just going to be happy to see Jared in there again. And maybe this opens the door. I don't know this, but maybe it opens the door again for that rumored uh, Joker Harley Quinn movie they were working on at one point years ago. I mean, maybe the failure of the Harley Quinn movie added with Jared coming back for the Justice League miniseries Maybe that equation equals the Joker and Harley Quinn movie coming, which I would love to see, but I don't know. I don't want to get ahead of myself. All right. Thanks a lot for that, Saber. All right. Matthew Gray writes, hi, John. Greetings from London, England. Well, greetings, Matthew. Uh, Big fan since the AMC days. My question is, do you think fans who campaign to see the Snyder Cut will say they loved it regardless of how good or bad it actually is. I can see the initial reaction being similar to The Phantom Menace when it came out. It's funny that you should say that. Uh, Thanks and keep bringing the filthiest filth, Matt. All right. Thanks a lot for saying that in, Matthew. This is a great question. Let me tell you what my basic answer is, and then let me explain it. In the question, do I think those who campaigned really hard to get a Snyder Cut, are those people likely to say that they love it and that it's awesome? even if it's not. The basic answer to that question is yes. Uh, You will see, even if the new Justice League miniseries comes out and it's truly awful, the people who campaigned hardest to get it are still going to act like it's the greatest thing since sliced bread. They're going to say it's awesome. They're going to say it's wonderful. They're going to say it's the best thing ever. That being said, there are a couple of things that should be said to form some context around that. One of those things is that Everybody does that. Let's not pretend like the people who campaign for Snyder Cut and they're going to say that this new Snyder Cut stuff is great no matter what. Let's not pretend they're the only people to do that. We all do it. I did that. And that's why I said it's really interesting they brought the Phantom Menace because I was in a similar situation. I, you got to understand, Star Wars is life and breath and air and sustenance to me. Star Wars is everything to me. And it had been since I was a child. The Phantom Menace, Star Wars coming back, I was so emotionally invested in that that I went to go see it the first time. Now, you, everybody knows I don't like the prequels, but the first time I went to go see it, I completely fooled my, I completely lied to myself and convinced myself that I loved it. And I came out of that theater the first time and I'm like, oh, that was so great. It was so amazing. It was so fantastic. Now, I went back to watch it again. I'm like, Okay, it wasn't quite as amazing and fantastic as I thought, but it was still great. I mean, it's still wonderful. And then the third time I went to go see it, it's like, okay, maybe it wasn't super fantastic, but it was really good. I mean, it was it was really good. Star Wars is back. Then I went to go see it a fourth time. Like, well, okay, it, it has some real weaknesses, but it's still good. It's still good. Then the fifth time I went to go see it, eh, okay, it was all right. <laughs> it was all right. And then by the sixth and seventh and eighth time I saw it, I'm like, no, this movie's really bad. <laughs> this movie's really bad. And it took it took a few viewings for me to get to where I realized I had just talked myself into the fact that I'm going to love this no matter what, right? We all do it. We all do it sometimes. Now, I, I don't know that that's ever happened to me again in the however many years it's been since The Phantom Menace came out, but we all do it. 
We all do it. And so, yes, I do believe that there are going to be some, not all, some people who really campaigned hard and who got really invested in getting a Snyder Cut made that even if the Snyder Cut ends up being total trash, they're going to say it's the greatest thing ever. Just like I was so invested in Phantom Menace that the first time I came out of watching it, I thought it was the greatest thing ever. But there's a few other things to take into consideration too. All entertainment is subjective. And so I believe there are going to be a lot of people who legitimately love the HBO miniseries of Justice League. I also believe there are some people who are really campaigning hard for Snyder Cut. If it doesn't end up being good, they will say, you know what? This actually wasn't very good. Some will say it's great no matter what. Some will say, no, it wasn't very good. Just like anything else, right? Just like anything else. So I don't believe this is going to be unique to Snyder Cut people. I believe it will happen because it happens to all of us. We've all done it, me included. But I also want to throw out one other asterisk here, which is the question assumes that the Snyder Cut of Justice League that we're going to get on HBO is going to be bad. I personally think it's going to be good. Now, the only reason I think that is because other than Sucker Punch, I have liked or loved every other project Zack Snyder has done, whether it's, you know, you're going across all of his filmography other than Sucker Punch. I have either liked or loved everything Zack Snyder has ever done from Legend of the Guardians, the Owls of, the Owls of Gaul to Man of Steel, which I still contend is the most underrated comic book film in the history of the genre. So I believe it's going to be good. And I believe I'm going to like it. But, you know, much like all the other stuff that Zack Snyder put out in the DCEU, there's going to be some of us who will like it. And there's going to be a bunch of people that don't. Look, we already know because we saw the response to Man of Steel which I think is a masterpiece, but we saw the response to Man of Steel. Half the critics and half the people hated it. I can't, whenever I am on the John Campus show and I mention how great I think Man of Steel is, I will get diluge, whether it's in my personal email or if it's on Twitter or if it's on Facebook or if it's in the comment section, Man of Steel sucks. Man of Steel, I mean, and that's fine because that's how a lot of people feel about it. And that's fair. That's fair. Same happened with, you know, Batman versus Superman. I liked it a lot but a lot of people hated it. So I I believe we're going to get a lot of the same. I think we're going to get history repeat itself. I think there's going to be those of us who like it uh, because I've got no reason to believe I'm not going to like it. I liked all the other stuff that Zack Snyder has done other than Sucker Punch. So I have no reason to believe I'm not going to like it. And then I believe a lot of people aren't because we already know what Zack Snyder's DCEU flavor is. We've already had a lot of what his flavor is. And a lot of people have seen it and they don't like his flavor. And that's fair. Then there's people like me that do like it. And that's fine. So, yes, if for whatever reason, the HBO miniseries of Justice League turns out to be bad. Yes, I do believe there will still be a bunch of people who are hardcore advocates for the Snyder Cut are still going to say it's the greatest thing ever anyway. But that shouldn't surprise us, nor does that make them more guilty than the rest of us, because we all do that with different properties. We all do it. I've done it, too. So it's going to be interesting. Let's see what happens. All right. Thanks a lot for sending that in, Matthew. All right. Next up, we got Lee Page who writes, Hey, John, Adam Sandler's deal with Netflix has been a huge success. Low budgets, big names, big views, eh, some of them. Um, What other possible deals do you see Netflix making to replicate this success? Uh, I'd like to see Owen Wilson and Vince Vaughn buddy movies. I think they'd be very successful and could harken back uh, to duos like Abbott and Costello. Your thoughts? Well, yeah, the problem, though, has been other than uncut gems, which, you know, when Adam Sandler goes dramatic, it works great. I, I love dramatic Adam Sandler. I have ever since he did Rain Over Me, a movie he should have gotten an Academy Award nomination for, by the way. But for the most part, man, these these Adam Sandler movies have sucked. These Adam Sandler straight to Netflix movies have absolutely sucked. But you point out something that kind of harkens back to what we were talking about earlier in the podcast, right? Which is, you know, these streaming services are going to look for cheap ways to do movies. They don't care if they're good. Just get some big names like an Adam Sandler, 
throw as little money at it as possible and just crank it out. Now, once in a while, you'll get like an uncut gems and that's great. But the strategy has been spend as little money as possible. Don't really care if it's great or not and just crank it out and you'll get some results. The problem is they don't all do great. Like you get a movie like Mystery, Murder Mystery, I think it was called, the one he did with Jennifer Aniston. Well, that's the the reteaming of him and Jennifer Aniston. They have worked together before. She's, of course, a very, very big name. Um, and it was like one of the highest rated viewed things of the year. I mean, nowhere near as much as, you know, uh, Extraction or things like that, but it's one of the higher viewed things of the year. But a lot of things, it's like the Transformers franchise, right? When the Transformers franchise started going to crap after the first one, because the first one I thought was quite good. The first Michael Bay Transformers movie I thought was good. I thought it was really good. I really liked it. The thing is, they were crap after that. And they kept making money, but eventually the audience catches on. Because when you continue to put out crap movie after crap movie after crap movie, eventually the audience catches on. And so what happened? We got to um, Transformers The Last Night. And it, it dove like 50%. It's box office take, if I can't, if I'm remembering correctly, d- d- dropped suddenly like 40 to 50% from the previous movie. And eventually the audience catches on. And you're going to get that with Adam Sandler comedies on Netflix as well. The audience catches on. And then I'll do something like Uncut Gems or do something like Murder Mystery where they're also pairing with another huge big star and, and it can work. As far as something like Owen Wilson and Vince Vaughn, the big difference though is is Adam Sandler was still a really hot name when he started making these Netflix films. Owen Wilson is not anymore. And Vince Vaughn, even though I believe he deserves to be, and he's got that new horror movie, that horror comedy movie, Freaky, coming out, which, by the way, I think looks really good. And I personally really like Vince Vaughn. I like Vince Vaughn very much. I even loved him in that like wrestling movie, Fighting With My Family, that came out like a year or two ago. I loved him in that. And I'm a big Vince Vaughn fan. I make no apologies for that. But even though I'm a big fan of his, make no mistake, he is not the name he used to be. And frankly, after Wedding Crashers, which is like one of my probably top 15, one of my favorite top 15 comedies of all time. I love Wedding Crashers. But other than that, I mean, the last one they did where they were like interns at Google or something like that, that movie was terrible. And that magic that they had in Wedding Crashers was just not able to be recaptured. Do I think if all of a sudden Vince Vaughn and Owen Wilson did a comedy on Netflix that would get anywhere near the response that an Adam Sandler comedy on Netflix gets? I don't. I, I, I hope it would. I would want it to, but I really don't think it would. Uh, they're just on different levels right now. So I don't know, but it'll be interesting to see. But here's the thing, Lee. Bottom line is the formula will only work if you satisfy audiences long term. And I think the audiences are starting to catch on. You know what? These these cheap little kind of just hiccuped out comedies, they're not very good. And I think you're going to see a diminishing return on that. But we'll see as we move forward. Good question, Lee. All right. Next up, uh, David Zuckerman writes, hey, John. Uh, add clouds to the small list of content on Disney Plus that is actually worth watching. This and Paddleton are now my on my uh, list of movies I think you'd like, but will never check out. I've never even heard of clouds. I've never even heard of clouds. Let me check out something here. Let me bring up here uh, clouds, IMDb, uh, clouds. Who was in this? A young musician, I'm already checked out. I'm already bored. <laughs> the synopsis of it is a young musician, I've instantly checked out. Uh, Zach uh, Sobiech discovers his cancer has spread, leaving him just a few months to live. With limited time, he follows his dream and makes an album, unaware that it will soon be a viral music phenomenon. Uh, stars, uh, oh, Nev Campbell's in it. Really? I didn't know that. Sabrina Carpenter. Uh, see if I recognize any of the other names in there. I don't, and that's fine. Uh, yeah, it doesn't look like a movie that would really catch my attention. Doesn't really look like one that's going to catch my attention. But hey, listen, because you brought it up, I'm now talking about on the podcast. we got thousands of people listening to this podcast. So you've spread the word about clouds. And you listen, I'll tell you what, if I hear some more recommendations for it, David, I just may check it out. Because remember, when people start recommending stuff, if a lot of people, like I mean, a lot of people start echoing that recommendation, I eventually break down and do go check it out. 
Clouds does not look like a movie for me, but uh, if I hear more people recommend it like you have, David, I just might have to check it out. Thanks for the recommendation. All right, next up, Raphael A. Castillo writes, Greetings, John. A documentary recommendation for those interested in UFO slash close encounters. I've read UFO books since the mid-70s and have watched a lot of documentaries, and The Phenomena is the best documentary on the subject I've ever seen. Very well produced, lots of photos, footage, and interviews, and even a couple of incidents that I've never even heard of. It's narrated by Peter Coyote and is one of the producers, uh, and one of the producers is Tracy Torme. Yes, that Tracy Torme, the writer of some of first season of Star Trek The Next Generation episodes. As for COVID-19, I'm staying safe and being smart. Well, good on you, Raphael. I got to admit, I'm not really into the UFO stuff. Don't get me wrong. I love alien invasion movies, but UFO discussions and and things, I, I've, I've never really been into that stuff. Although I got to say, I've seen the trailer for Phenomenon and it's a really intriguing trailer. Like I said, I'm not into UFO stuff, but if there was going to be a trailer that would get me interested and make me actually consider watching a UFO documentary, this is it. It really does look fascinating, and I just might check it out sometime. It's on Netflix, uh, and I just may have to sit down and watch it sometime. So thanks a lot for putting that on the radar, Raphael, and thanks a lot for the recommendation. All right. Rob Terry writes, hey, John, I know you're a big Kevin Smith fan. What are your thoughts on his more horror-based stuff like Red State and Tusk? I personally love them and think Red State may be one of his best. Thanks for the new open mic format. I love this. All right. Thanks a lot for writing that in, Rob. And look, I'm a big Kevin Smith fan Um, of his work. Yes, but I'm even a bigger fan of him as a personality, like the way he can stand on stage and tell stories. That's a hard skill. I mean, you have some of the best Hollywood legends of all time that can't do that effectively. Kevin Smith can stand on a stage by himself with a microphone and just enrapture an audience for two hours, just telling stories. He's fantastic at it. And his whole approach to his career and how he's made films, I'm just, to me, I don't know how you can resist being a fan of Kevin Smith. I don't love all of his movies. Some of them I very much do. I don't love all of them, but I cannot help but be a big fan of Kevin Smith. I, I just am. I just respect his body of work and how he's gone about doing it and how he's navigated a career and just the way he approaches the whole thing. I'm a big fan. I'm not the biggest fan of Red State or Tusk. I will admit, even though Tusk has got like one of my favorite guys in the business, Justin Long. I love Justin Long, but I I just couldn't get it. Red State, same thing. Just didn't really click for me for it. I don't hate them. Don't get me wrong. I'm not I'm not sitting here to trash on those movies. Not at all. But, you know, I, I have to admit they didn't really work for me as well. I I love that Kevin Smith. I'm a fan that Kevin Smith decided to step out of his regular sandbox to try something very different from what he's normally known for. I think that's amazing that he did that. But I, I mean, to me, the end results was still not, you know, as good as the results for me of some of his other stuff, whether it's Dogma, Chasing Amy, Clerks and Clerks 2, things like that. Um, yeah, those ones don't just don't work for me as well. And by the way, I'm not saying that means I don't think Kevin Smith should do stuff like that again in the future. If he does venture out into the horror stuff a little bit more later, I'll give it a shot too, because I'm very fascinated to see him do stuff like that. So we'll see. But yeah, uh, I'm not, I'm not the biggest fan of uh, red state or Tusk, unfortunately. Okay. Next up, Alexander Kent writes, Greetings, John. It's been some time since it was discussed. Do you think Disney purchasing 21st Century Fox for $71.3 billion was a good decision before COVID-19 and currently with COVID-19? Would you have agreed to the decision? Obviously, we're still in this pandemic situation, so who knows what will come in the future. Thank goodness for Disney Plus. This is the way. All right. Thanks a lot for saying that in, man. And yet, it's really been a while since we've really assessed Disney leveraging itself to its ears, making a $71 billion purchase, $71 billion purchase of Fox. Here's the thing. We are not yet in a position to evaluate that purchase. 
We're not. I mean, there are still a lot of people who mistakenly think, oh, they bought Fox so they could have X-Men and Fantastic Four. They don't give a crap about that. Kevin Feige does, but Bob Iger didn't give a crap about X-Men and Fantastic Four. That's not what he was thinking about when he made the purchase of $71 billion for Fox. What that was really all about, and if you go back, uh, even in my Collider days, to us giving our initial analysis of this, it was very, very clear Disney was not buying 21st Century for some of the movie IPs. Those would be pieces of the puzzle for sure, but they weren't the main all-encompassing thing. They were buying Fox so they could own their library of IP because Bob Iger knew that they were about to create a brand new branch to their business that was going to be really important to them. Streaming. Disney Plus, and Hulu. By buying Fox, they became the de facto owners of Hulu because they took over Fox's, obviously, Fox's uh, ownership interest in Hulu. They wanted Hulu. And they wanted the vast library that Fox had. And it wasn't so they could make new movies for the big screen, although that is going to be one of the... um, consequences of this purchase we're going to see some some movies on the big screen now that come from disney that we wouldn't have had otherwise and we're going to have fantastic four and the mcu and all that kind of stuff but that wasn't the main point the main point was to acquire this incredible library of ip because now they had this whole new arm it was for streaming it was for disney plus it was for hulu and all that kind of stuff and i am telling you you don't make a 71 billion dollar purchase with how does this pay off in the next 24 months? That's not what it's for. A 21 billion or a 71 billion dollar purchase is about this is positioning us for five years from now, for eight years from now, for 10 years from now. You can buy Lucasfilm for $4 billion and then immediately go, because we're going to make new Star Wars movies. That's great. But when you make a $71 billion purchase, it ain't about what you're going to do in the next 12 to 24 months. It's about the next five years. It's about the next 10 years. It's about the next 20 years. That is where Bob Iger was looking when he had Disney buy Fox. And so... This COVID stuff right now, honestly, it's inconsequential when it comes to the overall purchase that Disney made of Fox. It's inconsequential. It really isn't anything. And we can't even begin to really evaluate the purchase for another four or five years. I I honestly think that. I don't think we can even begin to start evaluating, was this a good purchase for Disney for another maybe five years? We're still a ways off from being able to do that um, because it was a very long-term strategy, not a short-term, not not a this year, next year, the year after strategy. It's about 5, 10, 15 years from now. And so that's when we're going to start to really be able to evaluate, did this work out from Disney? Until then, I'm just speculating. You know what I'm talking about? All right. Great question, though, Alexander. I'm glad you're still bringing it up. All right. Next one up comes us from Dickens Benjamin, who writes, hey, John. Can you elaborate on why it's a bad thing to let your consumers know you plan to expand on a property? Example, the Monsters Universe. I don't see consumers turning away due to to, uh, planning ahead. All right. Thanks a lot for writing that in, man. All right. So here's the deal. We've seen things like the Monsters Universe, right? This this is going to go down in infamy in, in Hollywood. Universal got way ahead of themselves. They had developed a plan to do this entire shared what they were calling dark universe. It was their monsterverse where they were going to create a whole new string of movies that were all in their own shared cinematic universe, just like Marvel does. But it was going to be the mummy and Dracula and Wolfman and the invisible man and, and all this great, great catalog of classic monsters that universal has. And they were kicking it off with the Tom Cruise mummy movie. By the way, side note, I don't think that mummy movie is all that bad. I kind of like that mummy movie. I I do. Sue me. I don't care. I actually think that movie is okay. I don't think it's great. I don't think it's great, but I actually think that movie's okay. 
Uh, I think it had enough going for it that the good slightly outweighed the bads. I had fun with it. So there, take that for what it's worth. At any rate, though, before that movie even came out, Universal, you guys remember that big like like magazine spread they put out with this famous photo of Tom Cruise and Javier Bardem and Johnny Depp and uh, why am I forgetting the name of the girl from uh, from Star Trek? I uh, the the dancer anyway I can't remember her name off the top of my head but had her in it as well and Russell Crowe in it. It's like guys we're we're not just coming out with a new movie. We've got like all this stuff planned. We've got the next ten years of movies. We got seven movies in the pipe. We're gonna look at these big stars. We got Johnny Depp is coming. I think Johnny Depp was gonna be Invisible Man at the time. We got Javier Bardem and we got Russell Crowe. We're gonna do this blah blah blah. They hadn't even put out one movie yet and they were completely getting ahead of themselves. They hadn't even put out the first movie. And they were telling the audience and telling the world, we, we're going to do all this stuff. Look at these pictures. Look at this, these stars we've assembled. Look at that great picture of Tom standing there with Russell Crowe and Javier Bardem and Johnny Depp and Sophie. I think her name's Sophie. Anyway, look at this. Isn't this great? This is going to be awesome. What happened? The first Mummy movie came out. People hated it. I didn't hate it, but most people hated it. And it did not do great at the box office. And it killed their monster universe. And it made Universal a laughingstock for a little while. They were embarrassed. I mean, I've talked, I've, I've got people, that, friends of mine that work at Universal. The company was humiliated. They were embarrassed. There was a lot of anger over there. There was a lot of finger pointing over there. People were not happy in the upper floors. And they had massive amounts of egg on their face. Here's the thing. If they had, it's okay to plan something to say, that, you know what? internally in the offices of Universal. It's okay to plan that, hey, look, we're going to do the Mummy movie first. And the goal here is, if this thing works the way we think it is, we're going to have these other pieces in place ready to go. And then we'll move forward and we'll do this, this, and this. But they should not have made that public. Not until at least the first movie comes out. Because here's the thing, and I've talked to some other studio people about this, I mean, a, a while ago, but, and this is what they seem to believe. If they didn't come out and publicize this huge shared cinematic universe before even putting out one movie, they probably could have done another movie even with the first movie flopping. Follow me here. Because they did The Mummy already announcing to the world they had the shared cinematic universe, The Mummy was a failure. And so in the minds of the audience, the universe was a failure. See what I'm saying? Because they already publicized and promoted that we're doing this whole cinematic universe that starts with the mummy. Well, guess what? The mummy comes out and it fails. Now in the minds of all the consumers, that monster universe is a failure and it was dead. Had they not come out and publicized to everybody what all their plans were right away before even putting out the first movie, it is possible that they could have put out that first mummy movie. It disappoints at the box office. They wait a year and a half and say, hey guys, now we've got an Invisible Man movie coming with Johnny Depp, and we got this great director, and we think it's going to be great. And then that comes out, and it reveals in the movie that's actually connected to that Mummy movie. Now you could actually have some excitement. People aren't going to be connecting the failure of the one with the other. At any rate, it's just an embarrassing thing to not even have the first movie out. And by the way, it happened with Power Rangers, right? Saban, 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 however you, Saban, however you pronounce the damn thing. Saban came out and announced before that first Power Rangers movie came out two years ago. They came out and said, we're already planning our seven movie uh, franchise. We're already, we're not planning the next, we're planning seven movies, seven Power Rangers movies in this universe. Blah, 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 blah. It's going to be great. They, they started boasting about that before even the first movie came out. And what happened? first movie came out. It was a big flop. I actually didn't mind that Power Rangers movie, even though I thought I was going to hate it. Whatever. It completely flops, loses a ton of money, and also brings with it a lot of embarrassment because they were talking, we're not talking about three sequels, four sequels, five, seven sequels. We're going to do, and it completely flopped. And because they already talked about all these other movies they're going to do, because the first one flopped in the minds of the audience, the whole thing was a failure. Once you have one movie come out, and it does something, yeah, then you can talk about franchise. Then you can talk about all the different plans you now have. But 
to come out and start talking about, we're going to do this and we're going to do this and we're going to do this and we're going to do all these things. And you haven't even waited to see if the first thing you do is any good and if the audience responds to it and if it can have any success. Hold hold the ship a little bit. Now, there are exceptions, right? Like Lord of the Rings is a trilogy of books. So when uh, when Warner Brothers and I think it was New Line, their subsidiary company, when New Line came out and said, we're just going to shoot the three Lord of the Rings movies. Lord of the Rings is already kind of seen as one package. That's an exception. You can do that, right? You can do that. But for the most part, I, I just think you are, there's no benefit there. That's the thing. There's no benefit to coming out and boasting about all your future plans with this property when you haven't even put out the first installment of it yet. There's no benefit to be gained. Play it a little closer to the vest, get the first thing out there, get the audience on board with it, see if you can have some success. And then you talk about all these big plans you have. Instead, You kill any future potential for what you could do, and you just get a lot of egg on your face and become embarrassed. So that's kind of why I think it's it's a bad move, and I think it's been proven that that it's kind of a bad move. So we'll see what happens in the future. All right, next one up, we got uh, Don Jerry Jerry. I know I'm going to mispronounce this. Jerryasunat Jerryasunat writes, "Hey, John." So from the sound of things, it doesn't seem like Los Angeles County will be able to open movie theaters anytime soon, which I know sucks for you because I live in L.A. County. Uh, There are still some movies coming out in theaters and are still open in Orange County. That's right. Orange County, which is only about 45 minutes to an hour away from me. They have movie theaters open. I went to go see Tenet there, as a matter of fact. Would a movie like Freaky, we were just talking about Freaky with Vince Vaughn. Would a movie like Freaky or Let Him Go entice you enough to make the one-hour drive to OC? That's a good question. Generally, no. Because now we're talking about a two-hour round trip to see a movie I may not even be all that excited about. But Freaky? I've really liked the trailers for Freaky. I've, I've liked what I've been seeing from Freaky. So Freaky is a movie that I just may make that drive for. Uh, it also helps that my wife seems like she's on board with that movie too. We, we watched another trailer for it the other day and my wife seemed to really get a kick out of it. So I think Anne is going to be down for that too. So freaky. Yeah. I think I might make the drive for freaky just cause I think it looks really refreshing and just, I'll be honest, look, listen, living in this pandemic and all this garbage that we've got going on just to go out and have some good laughs and some good scares at a movie like freaky that. That sounds pretty appealing to me. It's the kind of movie I would go out to watch right now, to be honest with you. So, yes, I'm going to say I would make the drive to see Freaky. Maybe not let him go. That's not no indication on whether I'm saying I think let him go looks like a good movie or not. It's just that am I going to make a two hour drive to go see that right now? Probably not. But Freaky, I got to say, I, I probably will. I probably will. All right, guys, our final question of the day comes to us from Angel Martinez, who writes, hey, John. I'm a fan from the mo- of the modern day Western. I enjoy both Tombstone and Wyatt Earp for different reasons. What are your thoughts between the two and which one do you prefer uh, to watch, if any? Well, my favorite Western of all time is actually Unforgiven. Unforgiven is, is my all-time favorite Western, no doubt. Between Tombstone and Wyatt Earp, look, I, I think they are both good movies, but Tombstone, mm, Tombstone... It transcends just being good. Tombstone's a great movie. It's it's great. And, and yes, you get great performances in both. You look over at Tombstone, you're talking about Bill Paxton and Sam Elliott and Kurt Russell, Val Kilmer, Michael Bean, Hell Charlton Heston. I mean, you even got guys like Jason Priestley. Slang is in there. Stephen Lang. Thomas Hayden Church, Sandman himself, is in there. I mean, it's, it's just a... Movie riddled with great talent and just the way that director, uh, I'm trying to remember, it had two directors, Kevin Jury and um, George something or other. Anyway, I'm trying to remember just the way they told the story and the way that story flowed, I just thought was a superior product to Wyatt Earp. Another movie I like and Wyatt Earp was directed by Lawrence Kasdan and I actually, I mean, Lawrence Kasdan. Obviously, Star Wars connections and everything. I'm a big fan of Lawrence Kasdan. But, and it also had a great cast. 
I mean, starting, I mean, I mean, the president himself from Independence Day, Bill Pullman, um, obviously Gene Hackman, you know, uh, one of the all time goats, Dennis Quaid, uh, Kevin Costner. Uh, it's a great movie. It's, well, it's a really good movie. Let me say that. It's a really good movie. Now, it came out after, if I'm not mistaken, I believe Wyatt Earp came out like a year after Tombstone did. And it's a good movie. And I know some people are kind of cold on Kevin Costner. I am on an unabashed Kevin Costner fan. I, I really like Kevin Costner. And I love Dennis Quaid and I love Gene Hackman and, and stuff like that. The performances in both movies are great. The casts in both movies are great. It just comes down to the flow of the story. And I just thought Tombstone was a better made movie. But hey, I'll sit down any day and I will be happy to watch either of them or watch them both. But if you had to ask me, you get to choose one. You can either watch Tombstone or you can watch White Earp. I'm going to fall on the Tombstone side. I just think it's a better told story. I just think it's a better directed movie. Um, it, it just works better for me on a lot of different levels. But I would have no argument with somebody else who came into the room and said they want to watch wider. I'll have no argument with them. All right, guys, listen, that will do it for this uh, first installment of the new version of Open Mic here as a podcast on our podcast channel. Don't forget, guys, please tune in every day to our YouTube channel to watch The John Campy Show. That's our main show, of course. We do it daily, Monday through Friday, you know, on days when there's actually news to talk about. Actually, it's kind of ironic. We're putting out this first episode of the Open Mic podcast version on a day that we actually didn't do a John Campy show. It's it's Wednesday, the 28th of October right now. And we didn't do a John Campy show today because there just was literally nothing to talk about there. So thankfully, we still had something to put out. We had this podcast. Uh, and again, a special thank you to the Patreon supporters of the John Campy show who sent in all these questions. Thank you so much to you guys. And, and thank you as well for being Patreon supporters and making our entire YouTube channel possible. And by the way, guys, if you're interested in becoming a Patreon supporter, I got to do, I don't do very many plugs for a Patreon, but if you do want to become a Patreon supporter, please go on over to patreon.com slash John Campia and get all the information there. All right, guys, that'll do it for me for now. Thanks for being here. We'll see you on the John Campia show tomorrow. That'll do it for now. And until next time, bye-bye.